Hello, everyone, and welcome to our call. My name is Karen Feeney, Product Specialist for the Arbitrage Funds. Joining me today is Greg LaPree, Portfolio Manager for our Credit Opportunities Fund. We want to keep you informed with regard to current credit market conditions, how they may be impacting our Credit Opportunities Fund, and our active positioning to take advantage of this environment. Greg, thank you for joining me today. How are you? I'm doing well, Karen. Hope you're doing well and you're staying safe. Doing well here and staying safe. Greg, you and the investment team have weathered various market volatility and crises over the years. Considering the team's tenured experience, could you please discuss how you successfully weathered former crises and what was learned from them and comment on any similarities to current market conditions? Sure, Karen. At Water Island Capital right now, I'm working alongside a group of individuals that have seen a lot of different crises going back, you know, some 25, 30 years in some cases. Um, myself, I've been through a lot of those as well. More recently, I've been through 9-11, the financial crisis in 2008. More recently, the taper tantrum in 2013. And they were all really uniquely crazy situations. 9-11, the markets were shut down for a number of, of days. Uh, it was likely that the country was going to go into a recession 2008, of course, was really a financial crisis where the banks were under pressure. We didn't know how we were going to come out of that, when we were going to come out of that, if we were going to come out of it. The taper tantrum was a little bit short, uh, shorter term uh, in nature, but we saw some of the violent selling that went on in the markets then that we have seen now. So those type of crises, when you go through them, when you trade through them, when you manage portfolios, they, they teach you a lot of a lot of lessons, a lot of hard lessons. And so some of the things that, that I, I've personally taken out of that and helping me to manage portfolio in this environment is the first thing that I try to eliminate is any type of noise. And when I talk about noise, I think it's really hard now because of the media attention. 24-7 news and financial news and all these publications that are out there, and they're just constantly hitting you with these headlines. A lot of it's negative headline, and it creates some negative psychology, and I think it impacts a lot of people, investors, ordinary people. And I think the thing that I have learned is to just be objective and to push out that noise. And when you can do that and you are objective and you focus on the sources that you think are good sources um, and you're not constantly harassed by those headlines, it does allow you to be more objective. So then the first thing that you really need to do is the ability to assess the present. And if you're in an environment uh, like any of the prior crises and, and in this present coronavirus-induced crisis, then you really need to become defensive. That's the first thing. It's really saying, let's make this ship stay in the water, stay upright. What can we do to make it float better, to stay more stable, all those types of things. And so what we really have done is the first thing that we do is we look at the quality of the portfolio. We look at individual names. How much are they going to be impacted by this virus? What industry are they part of? Do we need to sell those positions? Do we need to focus on sizing it differently? The next part is really looking at each position and the portfolio and saying, what can we do for hedges? Can we put uh, better hedges on? Can we put more hedges on the portfolio? And then the last thing is really selection. Any type of new name that you're putting on, the analysis is probably going to be a little bit different, or at least uh, you're going to add on top of the analysis that you've done in more normalized periods, and the selection is going to really be based on or include liquidity analysis, access to cash, those sorts of things, because we want to make sure that if we get through this, 
our, our company is going to be there in the end. So those are the things that, that I focus on big picture while we're going through the current environment. But I think equally important is really to not necessarily, as my father would say, live with your nose in your navel. Really what you also have to do is you have to see through to the other side. You need to pick your head up and you have to really think about what are things going to look like if and when we rebound. And I think that's important to do because that allows you to see the light at the end of the tunnel. And in those cases, what we're really looking at is we're looking at companies, we're looking at situations that we think are going to do well coming out of this crisis, that maybe they're beat up now because it's selling, but going forward, they offer us that optionality, they offer us that upside. And so that's one of the things, I think, frankly, that's one of the things I really enjoy doing in this type of environment. And even though it's hard for everybody, uh, all investors, to see all the selling going on, when you can look there and you can say, here's a position, here's the opportunity, it sold off 20 points, we think this thing is going to go up 25 or 30 from here, you know, that really gives us some hope and some optimism. And so we're looking at a lot of those types of situations. Thank you, Greg. Now, a few questions pertaining more specifically to the Credit Opportunities Fund. Does the significant drawdown in high yield impact the fund? The simple answer is yes, and that is because uh, a lot of our positions are positions in the issuers of high yield bonds. And, And we've told people before that the main reason for that is not because we like high yield because of the yields or anything along those lines. It's really because that's where a lot of the catalysts and events are occurring. A typical position for us, it's going to be in the target debt of a company that's being acquired. And for most of these situations, uh, they tend not to be investment-grade targets because those are the larger companies. They tend to be high-yield-rated companies, uh, more mid-cap types of companies. And even if they are large-cap, they may have more leverage and so forth. So that's the reason that we operate in the high-yield market. That doesn't mean we're exclusively in the high-yield market. And as I'll probably talk about Later, we're actually seeing some really interesting opportunities in the investment-grade market now. But given that we do invest in the high-yield market, there there are correlations between our portfolio and the high-yield market. But the biggest distinction between the two is really that our portfolio continues to be a short-duration portfolio. We are still tied to catalysts uh, in the portfolio rather than just buying something that's more beta, has more beta to it, or something we're just looking to uh, earn yield on. And the other part is that we're, we use shorts and we use a lot of hedges in the portfolio, whether equity hedges or debt hedges in there. So we're really distinguished from the high-yield market. And when you take everything into account, you're going to see that, yes, there's a correlation between the two, but you're going to see drawdowns in our portfolio that are quite a bit less than what you'll see in, in the indices of the high-yield market. So I think at the peak drawdown last month, the high-yield index, the broader index, was down around 24 25%. And at our peak at one point, we were down somewhere around 7%. And then each of those portfolios is going to kind of walk to its own beat. Our portfolio has been working its way back as some of the risk has come out of the market and people have felt like it's a little safer to come back into the water. So that's really how I see our being part of the high-yield market, but also being pretty distinguished from the high-yield market itself. Thank you. How does a zero-rate environment or potential negative-rate environment impact the fund? Well, that's a, that's a great question. We always talk about the rates of return that we earn in a merger arbitrage deal or in the situations that we invest in in the credit fund as being spread product. And so when we talk about a spread product, we're really talking about a risk-free rate, which we, we usually take as a, as a short-term government rate. And on top of that, 
some type of spread. And that spread, remember, is really made up of, of, of a handful of things. That spread is, is made up of supply and demand in the market. If we have more deals to choose from or less deals, that's going to increase or decrease the spread. We look at the risk of a deal being completed. If there's high risk of a deal being completed, that spread's going to be wider. And then, of course, in this market, we have not only risk of a deal being completed that's pushing spreads wider, but we just have overall market volatility. Our asset class has to compete against other asset classes. So uh, if we look at uh, the spreads right now, they're, they're quite wide, very wide, historically wide. And yet at the same time, our risk-free rate is, is effectively zero. So really in this market, the short-term risk-free rates have very little to do with the returns that we're seeing in the market. Now, when we get into a more normalized rate of return market, and you really have to go back probably four or five years ago when we had low volatility and we had low rates, there we still had positive spreads in the market. And in merger arb, maybe it was 3 to 5%. In high-yield bonds, maybe it was 4 to 6%. But you still, despite having such low rates, you still had a positive spread environment. So I think one of the things that people will look at and one of the reasons that they look at merger arbitrage and, and, and some of the things that we do in our credit fund is because they can still see some type of spread and still get some, quote-unquote, fixed income exposure into their portfolios without that duration risk. Great. Over these past few weeks, what has or hasn't worked and how are you mitigating risk? Well, really, over the last couple of weeks, I mean, I'll start with mitigating risk is probably the the best place to start. Mitigating risk, and I touched on it earlier, we're really doing a deeper analysis of every position. We're double reading our merger agreements. We're now looking at the indentures, but specific sections that talk about leverage, that talk about filing dates uh, for financials. We're talking about leverage tests, uh, interest ratio coverages, things like that, covenants that could be breached in, in, in the future. We're doing a lot more, not just fundamental analysis from a valuation perspective, but a lot of what you're doing now shifts to liquidity analysis. How much cash does the company have? What access do they have to the capital markets if they need to raise cash? Have they drawn on their revolvers? So those are things that that we're doing to mitigate risk and to try to find situations that we're either not comfortable with or we are comfortable with. The second part is we really need to look at every position, new position uh, or position in the portfolio. And we have to look at the industry that it's part of, because now all of a sudden we may have been comfortable with a company that was involved in, let's say, travel or, or gaming. And we thought, oh, these are pretty good credits or this is a pretty good investment. Well, now all of a sudden they've shut down casinos. The airlines have shut down. And so we really have to find industries or be comfortable with industries that are going to be less uh, less impacted from the shutdown. So we're seeing, uh, I I think, one of the sectors that's held up uh, relatively well, depending on the company's placement. We've seen decent support for the technology sector, but obviously airlines, travel, leisure, gaming, those areas have really been hit hard. The other thing that you do to mitigate risk is really reinforce your hedges. That's something you have to go through. You have to look at your upside and your downside. Uh, If there is a risk there, is it possible to mitigate that risk in some way? And I know in in the recent, in the past week, we went through the credit portfolio, and we found that we can really embellish some of these hedges better. We can bring up not only to capture some of the upsides, but we can probably uh, be creating better upside-downsides for the portfolio. So we actually went back using the equity market, using the option market, and we implemented um, some pretty strong hedges for the position. So we think that if there is another drop here, we're going to be in a lot better shape going forward. So those are really the main things that we're looking at. As far as what hasn't worked, and what has worked, 
things that, that have worked in the past month, really since this crisis started, name-specific hedges, macro hedges, those did well around positions, mitigated some of the downside in our alpha positions, called paper, which is interesting. We've had positions on where a company will call a bond and they'll pay for it in 30 days. That's something that we've used in the past as more of our, almost like a cash proxy for us. And in a, in a benign market, going back you know, three months ago, six months ago, called paper might get us uh, a 25 to 3% return for 30-day holdings, which is really, it's pretty paltry, but it's better than putting it into cash, and we know that we're going to get that uh, cash paid in about 30 days. In this type of market, if a bond had been called going into this crisis, people were selling that stuff uh, anywhere between 10 to 20% yields. They're not big point movers. But for 30-day paper and some of the stuff, you could be getting anywhere from 10 to 20 to 25%. <clears throat> so pretty dramatic. But the names that we did have in the portfolio, they all they all closed. They paid, and, and we made some money on those during the month. Deals that closed mergers during the period. <clears throat> we had a couple of deals closed, and it worked just the way merger arbitrage is supposed to work, and that is the merger agreement was honored. We were paid on our bonds by the company, and essentially we received our cash. So those deals did fine as well. And then during the period... As we got a lot of disruptions, some of our best performers during the quarter were actually some of the additions of our high-quality and short-duration first-lean paper that we had picked up. Um, What we saw is that the spreads had widened pretty dramatically, particularly in investment-grade paper, and you were able to go in and buy, say, a longer-dated Disney bond that the spread had blown out from about 75 basis points to almost 500 basis points. So that's a huge move. So some of these bonds that we were looking at had dropped anywhere from 15 to 30 points, which is huge. And we know that Disney was impacted, obviously, from closing the theme parks and the like, but it's also a company that we were willing to really make a bet that they were not only going to survive, but they were going to eventually thrive. Uh, And they're also very well diversified with respect to their media offerings, and now they have Disney Plus and that sort of thing. So it was really just a matter of uh, them getting through this crisis. Certainly they had a lot of liquidity, so we had added a position uh, to one of their bonds, uh, and we saw that once that crisis in the investment-grade market had, had worked its way out and it started improving, we saw some of our biggest gains in positions like Disney. So that's really what worked and didn't work. Uh, that's what did work, I should say. Um, what didn't work, certainly ener- energy-related names, they performed the worst, and name-specific hedges really proved to be inadequate amongst some of the forced selling Some of the merger-related bonds, particularly the longer-dated transactions, deals that we thought were not going to close until the end of this year, the beginning of next year, they saw some pretty significant temporary markdowns. They've since begun to recover, but we noticed that there was just a lot of forced selling. We saw accounts that were just selling things out. They didn't care about the merger agreement. They were just looking to either liquidate or to reduce positions. So right around March 23rd was kind of low, uh, and if anybody ever pulled up a price chart of a, of a bond, you would see some of these things look like they just fell off a cliff. And then since then, it looks like uh, they've jumped back up. So that was during the period, that was a painful part of, of the selling process that went on in the market. So those are really the things that worked uh, and, and didn't work in the portfolio. So hopefully that's helpful to our listeners. Great. What specific opportunities do you see right now and going forward in the near future? Really, a few different things. One I had mentioned is that we try to do is, is in a market like this, there are a lot of dislocations. And, and, and the first thing that I had mentioned before was the investment-grade market had some pretty massive uh, dislocations. And when I say dislocations, just like the the longer-dated Disney bonds that I talked about, and there's other names like that. I'm just using that as an example. But when you see 
these quality companies and their prices are trading down 15, 20, 30 points. That, to me, speaks as, as far as a great opportunity. The second part is, in a market like this, whether you're in equities, whether you're in fixed income, one of the patterns is that there's a lot of near-dated selling. So in, in bonds, people will tend to sell the shortest-duration securities because of the closest to maturity. They're deemed as being safe, and so you don't get a big price movement. So what that does is you get selling at the front end of the curve, and that inverts the curve. And inverting the curve means that your short-term yields go up just about equal, or they might exceed the longer-term yields. So that presents an opportunity, particularly for us, because we do like to focus on some short-duration types of opportunities. So in this market, not only did you get inversion, but you were actually able to find names and securities that were um, not only inverted, where you're looking at 8, 10, 15% yield for something that's under two-year piece of paper, but you were able to get high quality. And so one of the searches that I did over the last couple of weeks is I said, well, yeah, I, I want to look at short-dated maturities, but I only want first lien, and I only want it in certain industries that are really going to be not impacted by this virus. So we were able to scoop up a few different names and capitalize on one of those types of opportunities. And the third part, which is really more of our bread and butter, is related to uh, merger arbitrage. As I mentioned before, we saw some really big price gaps in some of the bonds related to these situations. We saw them in the stock as well, but in, on the bond side, we were able to go in and add to some of those positions. And so we see, we've seen a pretty good bounce back in a couple of those deals over the last week. So we're pretty happy with those investments. Greg, thank you for sharing your experienced insights. They're providing confidence and calm to our investors. To our listeners, thank you for joining this credit market and portfolio update. Stay tuned for additional updates on our other strategies. Please reach out to your respective regional product specialist teams with any questions.